Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. It's not about having more information. It's about having the right information. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with David Dylan Thomas. Dave is the author of the book, Design for Cognitive Bias, from a book apart, serves as a content strategy advocate at Think Company, and is the creator and host of the Cognitive Bias podcast. He has developed digital strategies for major clients in entertainment, healthcare, publishing, finance, and retail. Dave has presented at TED New York City, South by Southwest Interactive, Confab, IA Conference, and many other conferences on the topics of intersection of bias, design, and social justice. Dave and I discuss the ethics, or lack thereof, in design with a focus on cognitive bias. I appreciated Dave's perspective regarding the importance of once we recognize a bias, we have the responsibility to address it and the connection to social justice. As with other behavioral science and bias discussions, we talk about how bad our brains are as a memory machine. It was an honor to have Dave join the podcast. I really appreciated his insights and passion. Thanks to David for joining me. I hope you enjoy the episode. David, it's absolute absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. If you don't mind, uh, for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am the author of the book, Design for Cognitive Bias. Um, And when I'm not talking about that, I go out and do a lot of talks about uh, design bias and social justice. And I am a content strategy advocate at a company called Think Company. It's an experience design firm. Awesome. Thanks. How did you end up in, uh, you know, kind of broad stroke, but how did you end up in the design space? Sure. So it all started out, you know, from my point of view in high school, when I was making movies, I've been making movies ever since I was a kid. And that's, as a content strategist, you know, a bit about storytelling. And I think my storytelling chops came from uh, making movies ever since I was a kid. But really around 2000, I started getting into the web, working in distance education. Uh, and that's really when I fell in love with the power of the web to bring people together. And I started to understand things about um, experience design. Um, and then in the uh, late 2000s is when I really started having jobs if content strategy wasn't in the title of the job it was definitely in the job description (laughs) i don't think we had a word for it yet but i was doing a lot of thinking structurally about content and thinking about purpose and content and strategies and and all that and you know through all of that i I originally became a fan of user experience this is back when idea was producing like the human factors toolkit and sort of talking about this abstract thing called ux uh but then i got to actually practice it work, work with some great people at companies like epam and now think company Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just a couple connections, too, is uh, I started off my undergrad uh, broadcast and film major. Oh, and, nice. And then also spent years at Capella University in the early days of uh, for-profit online education. Mm. So what were you doing in the distance learning space? So I was in a, in a pretty cool space there because there was um, Center for Talented Youth is a group that has run out of Johns Hopkins, where I went to, went to undergrad. And uh, 
even before it had an online component, it was basically like summer camp for smart kids. So if you were in middle school or high school and you tested really well, you might be given college level courses in math, science, and, and writing. So I happened to be teaching um, writing uh, for um, kids who had tested really well, middle schoolers and high schoolers. We were giving them a college level narrative um, nonfiction course um, and on CD-ROM. Remember those? (laughs) So we'd send out the CD-ROM, they'd take the lessons, and then they would come into, it was basically a forum, an online forum, which, you know, surprisingly hasn't changed much structurally since, you know, in 20 years. Like, it's the same basic, you know, it's... It's got the durability of Craigslist. (laughs) Pretty much. It's it's a little little less evolved than Reddit, maybe, you know, in terms of the format. Um, And what was really cool was, so the kids would do their lessons, and then they would come to those forums to workshop their work you know, um, uh, which was awesome. And you'd have these kids from all over the world, extremely talented kids, um, getting to know each other. And I kind of thought that was amazing that a kid in Japan could get to know a kid in Connecticut and bond over their writing and bond over other things. We actually started adding more normal topics for forums like, you know, pop culture or movies or sports or whatever. Um, And kids would just start to, you know, have and have these really nuanced discussions around things like homeschooling, again, from like across the world. Uh, so I, at that point, I think I was hooked on like the web as this potential for just amazing stuff that you just weren't able to do in the real world. Yeah, that's great. I want to want to talk to you a little bit now because I think for some of us that have been around kind of digital design and the, some of the evolution of the web or where where some platforms maybe haven't evolved that much, but uh, just curious on your perspective, was well, I'll... I'll have you critique me. So my, okay. my uh, so I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for you that would, but I, I remember like when I was starting to do internet and, and internet projects and then websites and web apps, it felt like the big charge was just make this easy to use, right? Almost helping people switch from, from kind of one media to another. This might've been paper-based form-based. Now, how do we do digital forms? And in my mind, it was like, we could do no wrong, right? We were, the ethics wasn't even really on our mind, but now like seeing kind of the the unintended negative consequences of web design. And I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, was there a general naivete uh, or uh, did we just not ask the right questions early enough? I mean, I, not only was there a general naivete, I fully copped to being part of that general naivete. I mean, I, I had been shown a very positive side effect of the web with a very small sample size of participants, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that we thought we would get the ethics for free. I think when we built the web, we thought we were ethical f- people, and therefore our ethics would n- naturally bleed into the web itself. If you look back at the founding of the web, and I'm going to recommend a book by Meredith Broussard, called Artificial Intelligence. It's fantastic. And she gets into some of the early thinking around the web, and it's very libertarian. Um, And you have a lot of folks who were coming out of like 60s communes, and sort of the experiment of the 60s commune was that if we start over with these pure intent, we'll create this utopia. And I think it was a very similar ethic in the early web was, hey, we're good people. Naturally, whatever we make is going to be good, right? Um, And I think we thought that the problem, we thought that we were good and the only thing we really had, the only problem we had to solve was an engineering problem of taking 
the, the, the tasks we wanted to make easier to do. Again, that focus on making things easy to do. Right. And we, we assumed that that naturally uh, ethical behavior would follow. And I think what we didn't realize, and I'm going to quote another author, uh, Sarah Walker Betcher, whose book Technically Wrong is amazing on this topic. Um, she points out that like the web stuff isn't technical stuff, it's people stuff. And we're not qualified to do people stuff. How many UX people actually have a psychology or social sciences degree? Some do, but not that many. Right. right. Um, uh, and so we were trying to do an engineering thing. What we should have been doing was a people thing and then an engineering thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, because it was, and also uh, so many sites, they were self-contained, right? They really weren't connected to other elements. And so we weren't really thinking too deeply about like data privacy or, you know, even even some of those elements because everything was, early was just contained. But uh, that's great. And I I appreciate the, uh, the recommendations because I'm going to have to dig in to those. Tell me a little bit more about your journey then that brought, kind of brought you from early days, let's make this easy to use to uh, now really looking at what cognitive bias is, is doing and how uh, it can either uh, help or hinder, hinder the way we, we design going forward. Yeah, well, I think the, 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 the big eye-opening moment for me was uh, a talk by Iris Bonnet called uh, Gender Equality by Design. And I, you can find this thing uh, on, on the web. Um, it's fantastic, it's on YouTube. And one of the points she makes is that something as terrible as uh, racial bias or gender bias, a lot, of, a lot of the time is simply coming down to pattern recognition. You could have someone who fundamentally believes that women are just as good at programming as men are, but if they see a woman's name at the top of a resume for a web development job, might unconsciously give that resume the side eye. And so we have to think about things like anonymized resumes to defend against our own bias. And we have to acknowledge that there are certain things that are out of our control, not out of our responsibility per se, right? Because once I know I have that bias, it's my responsibility to make sure that that bias isn't going to hurt anyone. But in that moment, that pattern that's been set up in my mind of, you know, uh, web designer equals male, and whether that patterns come from TV or movies or just offices that I've worked in, once that pattern is there, it's, it's very hard to um, dislodge. And so if I know it's there, it's my responsibility now to say, oh, okay, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I shouldn't go in a bar. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to uh, uh, knee-jerk reactions around who is a web designer. I need to anonymize my resumes or make sure that other people are looking at this or specifically look for women to fill these roles or whatever that intervention is. But I got to do something. I can't just go with the standard process because the standard process is susceptible to my bias that I'm going to bring in the room when right. I do the job. Thanks. Uh, and I, I do want to dig in a, a bit more into some of the different biases that, that mm -hmm. you cover. Uh, but it, it's interesting to me, uh, some of the, the dialogue where uh, can, as we as we apply technology that AI won't have bias. Right? And, it's, <laughs> and, and for me, I feel like it's, it's an easy way to scale your bias. Right? Oh, 100%. Because the folks that are actually building it, are, 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 you know, putting their bias into the code. Not that they know that they are, right? I think, I think mm -hmm. that might be the problem, but I've just found that interesting because um, people, I've heard arguments that if you apply AI to resumes, then, mm -hmm. right, it's, things will, things will be better. But it's, I feel like you're still putting, you're putting your bias in and now you're scaling it uh, yeah. at a new level with, with technology. Well, which, which you're doing, see, people have a fundamental, and, I'm, and again, I'm going to recommend Meredith's book, but people yeah. have a fundamental misunderstanding of what AI actually is. When we think of AI, 
I, I think we imagine Spock from Star Trek, right? This cold, logical, rational yeah. uh, an entity that is able to look at a, a situation. But what an AI basically is, is a prediction machine. Like that's like what actual AI, not like general sci-fi Skynet AI, but actual AI that is, exists in the real world is a prediction yeah. machine. And you put in a lot of data about the thing you wanted to make predictions about, and then it spits out predictions and you judge its predictions. And here's the messed up part. You judge the predictions based on what you know has historically happened, right? So if I try to get a computer, this is the example she uses, which is great. If I try to get a computer to predict who would have died, who, did, who died on the Titanic, right? I can feed it all these things that I know about those people, their age groups, their like income, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have, you know, I know who actually died. And then can I, I, I can tell the computer, I, I want you to guess who died based on these factors. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about what actually happened, but you guess the rest. And then it'll predict and based on how close it got, I'll say, yeah, you did it. Now, that makes sense in the world of the Titanic example, but A, the Titanic example, there's a lot of data we don't know, right? And there's a lot of predictions it can't make because we just don't have the data to give it. As, and that, that they may be really important factors. But if you apply that to something like resumes, like Amazon did, where they had a hiring bot and it was supposed to, again, I'm going to give you the last 10 years of resumes. You tell me who you think is a good fit. Well, the last 10 years of resumes are mostly guys. Naturally, the AI is going to think guys are better for this job and start just recommending guys. And if it sees a woman, it's going to demote her. So you can't point an AI at a racist, sexist world and have it predict a non-sexist and non-racist world because that's just not what AIs do. <laughs> Right. Thank you. So if I'm tracking too, like the Amazon example, it's, it's taking 10 years of past history and assuming that's right. So we'll extend that. It's extending that pattern. Yeah. And, and, and that's the key. It's assuming that's right. Computers do what you tell them to do. I cannot stress this enough. Computers don't, you know, we're not at the point yet where the computer is able to then come up with a better motive. <laughs> it may come up with a better means, right? We've had right. some very clever AIs find some really cool shortcuts, but it's never going to say, oh, I see what you're trying to do here is create a more equitable world. Like that's not what Clippy does, you know, <laughs> right? It's just, oh, I, exactly, <laughs> exactly, like, right? looks like you want to create a better world. Here's how yeah. I can help. <laughs> All it can do is give you, you know, take data and crunch it faster than you can to make right. predictions. That's what AI does. And if the data you give it is racist, it is going to scale yep. <laughs> racist predictions and racist outcomes. And you'll think, oh, that's not racist because the computer said it. Right, right, right. Exactly. Thank you. I love that. Um, not, not that we're perpetuating racism and sexism <laughs> technology. I love the explanation. Uh, when you're talking about the resumes too, it was reminding me of, uh, and I can't remember the details very well, but the Gladwell story, I believe, was it the Toronto Orchestra where mm. they started, um, because, and it was, I think they were dealing with sexism, and then they started having uh, auditions where the musician would sit behind a screen and so it was uh, it was forcing the people making a decision on on who to bring in just to use their ear rather than looking at the person as a as an attempt to kind of uh, be intentional about about kind of where where they were interjecting sexism in this case yeah and and i think i love that example because it sort of points at there's a fallacy that the more information you have the better decision you're going to make and it's not about having more information, it's about having the right information. There's another similar study where uh, doctors had to make you know, judgments about um, uh, you know, uh, patient symptoms. And the doctors who were given too much information like ended up making poorer judgments than doctors who were given more, the, better, the more relevant information. 
right? Um, so it's it's a life or death thing, right? So right. I think that when we're looking at the resume example, right? Um, I love the exercise of trying to anonymize a resume. In fact, I do a workshop where I have people take a LinkedIn page and try to remove all the biasing elements. And the challenge of that as a designer is to say, what is actually important here? What is something that, you know, I just assume should be there like the name or the photo or the name of the college they went to versus what is actually helpful, right? Which might be literally what have you, what, what have you done? What work have you done in this area? Um, I mean, you're really deconstructing the resume to get the signal out from the noise. And when you realize that you're going to walk in that room and have all these biases um, that are going to be triggered by all this, what is actually irrelevant information, <laughs> um, you start to say, oh, not only is it, you know, more elegant and efficient to whittle it down to these key things, it's also fairer. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Digging into your, uh, your, your book a little bit, and, and my, my mental model is that you'd been, you'd been working on the idea of cognitive bias and, and, and given some talks, and now the book was a heavy-duty effort to really pull, pull it all together and, and get more information in there. Uh, what was the process like pulling, pulling the book together, and, and were there new findings along the way for you? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, one thing it did was really expose, uh, you know, how much bias I have <laughs> uh, and how, like, one of the things you find out when you study bias is that our memories are awful. <laughs> um, we think our memories are like these recording machines, like you see in a convenience store, just, you know, a whole bunch of videotapes of everything that's ever happened in the store. And it's perfect. If only you could retrieve it. But in fact, it's much more like um, those like old Unsolved Mysteries TV programs where they'd reenact the crime. And if you can imagine a bunch of day players reenacting the crime very poorly <laughs> and like they're all drunk and they can't remember their lines. Yeah. And every time they do it, it's different. That's yep. what your memory is actually like. Um, and uh, so I would find, you know, when it came time to fact check the book that I would have these really cool examples uh, and these really cool studies that I'm like, yeah, I heard this one time about this crazy study where this thing happened. And then I'd look and actually try to research and find out, oh no, those are two completely different studies that I'd conflated in my mind into a super study, <laughs> you know? The other thing I'd find was that uh, very often things were worse than I thought. <laughs> so I used to say in my talk that it was like 90% of, of, of um, decision-making of basically thought happens below the threshold of conscious thought. Like basically most of the decisions you're making, you're making without even realizing it. It's actually 95%. <laughs> and then there was a study about uh, people who uh, whiten their resume. So basically remove any reference to their race. Uh, and I, I think it was, I thought it was something like uh, for black people anyway, like twice as many callbacks. If you whiten your resume, it's actually two and a half times as many. So like, I kept finding it's like, it's bad, but it's actually even worse than I thought. <laughs> it was, it was worse than you believed. The more you dug yeah. in, you were finding yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you don't mind also, cause you had mentioned earlier, the connection to social justice. Can, mm -hmm. Do you mind, do you mind kind of connecting those dots for me? Cause I, yeah. I don't want to assume on that, but if you, you no, really bring those think... together. I think that's the reason it really matters, right? Like it's one thing if like, okay, so here's some cognitive biases and the worst they can ever do is to make you do stupid things that don't really harm anyone. 
Um, and there are some biases that are harmless like that, but there are some biases that are causing actual harm to other people. And when we uh, put that into technology, it's very easy to scale that harm, you know, in a big, bad way. So um, that's, that, that to me is the connection between bias and social justice is that you're not just dealing with a, a bunch of folks who are like actively racist, right? You're not dealing with a bunch of folks like most of white supremacy is getting its strength off of momentum and like laws that were enacted a while ago and people just don't question and practices that people just don't question language that people just don't question it's it's momentum it's just we've had this and, and we never even think about it you have a handful of people who are absolutely very actively doing things like voter suppression right <laughs> and and shooting black people like that is definitely there but the vast majority of folks involved in white supremacy don't even realize that that's what they're doing um they can connect the dots if you help them but like it's not they don't wake up in the morning and say like gee well, how can i support white supremacy today right, um, right. so design uh unwittingly or not can scale that activity by not really checking any of those biases, you know? And again, I go to the resume example. It's like, why do we write the resumes the way we do? But because that's how we all, we've always done it. You know, no, no one wants to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> right. But right. if someone tells you, hey, the wheel is crushing people, okay, maybe it is time to reinvent the wheel, <laughs> right? Uh, but that to me is the connection of social justice is that these biases actually do cause real harm for real people. And bias is a good place to start because when you deal with bias, you're dealing with, I think, like 90% of the problem. And the reason I say that is there was a um, experiment, uh, Trisha Prabhu, who's 14 year old, who um, got into the Google Science Fair with this project called uh, Rethink. And it's basically an intervention where if you're about to type something harmful on social media, you get a little pop-up that says, hey, this might be harmful, are you sure you wanna post it? And in her experiment, like 90% of the people who saw that didn't post the mean thing because it wasn't like they woke up in the morning and said, I want to hurt somebody. They just didn't realize that there was a human being on the other end of that tweet. As soon as you reminded them of that fact, they stepped away. Now, yes, that meant there were still 10% of folks who were like, hell yeah, I want to do something hurtful, but <laughs> right. I'd rather deal with 10% active white supremacists than hundred percent active white supremacists. Yeah. No, think in, in thinking a little bit about uh, like your, your resume example, it does make me think with like how much is like at the individual actor level, how much is uh, like they're just automating repeat. It's, it's not necessarily like ill will. Like you said, there's, there's 10% that might, yep. I'm going to go ahead. I hate people. I'm a bad person and I'm all in, I'm going to do this right. Versus, Hey, this is a model. This is a pattern. I'm just repeating it and not, not getting into reflective thinking about where, where this fits or what this might do. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. And, and I think a lot of the book, you know, the book is problems and solutions. And a lot of the yeah. solutions really are about building in a habit of reflectfulness, right? Building in habits that force you to step back and say, what assumptions am I making right now as I design this team, as I design this product? What assumptions am I making that I shouldn't be making? And who can help me make different assumptions? And how can I bring them into the process? But literally making it a part of the process. Like to me, when I think of the goals of this book would be to change like estimation sessions, right? So that people make time for, okay, um, on this day, before the kickoff, we're gonna look at our team and write down what our perspectives are and which perspectives aren't represented. 
and make an action plan yeah. for how we're going to represent them. On this day, we're going to have a red team come in and look at everything we've done so far and check us for bias, right? On this day, we're going to do a speculative design exercise where we think about all the bad outcomes that our product could produce, right? But if it isn't in the budget, it doesn't exist. So to me, the end game is really changing those budget sheets <laughs> and those project plans and those estimation sheets to have the process built in. Because uh, that's how you that that's how you scale anti-bias, right? That's how yeah. that that that's how you scale more informed ethical design is by paying for it. <laughs> I yes, and lately I've been trying to investigate different ways. This feel the feels very similar because I feel like especially when you're dealing with large organizations or government institutions, basically there's like an RFP, and that's that's to, that's to work against the problem as defined. Right. And, and it's, it's so it's, and it's almost like the solution is baked in and they're just looking for somebody who, who's going to be the cheapest, fastest way to, to build this. And all of those things where, well, that might not be your problem. Let's, let's dig in. What is the real problem? And so that's, I, that's, I've been trying to spend some time with, with folks work, working on, on that end, not, not specifically with, as you said, like with uh, kind of race and, and cognitive bias, but I just, I see the whole system is just, it, it's there to repeat this process as if everything is still a tame problem rather than, you know, in design, like a wicked or complex adaptive problem. And I think, I think that set is, is already hard. And who wants to raise their hand at the last minute and say, uh, actually, we should shelve this $100 million project and budget. And, and what if we just spent 5 million on really investigating the problem so we can be more, more accurate and, and that's a theme too. When you were, when you're talking about some of the AI, I was just thinking about is the conflation of precision versus accuracy on a mm. problem that like false sense of precision. So we put a lot of numbers on it or our Excel sheet goes to the, you know, the, the hundredth kind of, and so it must, it must be really, it must be, you know, precise, but is it accurate on, are we really addressing the, the problem? Uh, so thank you. Sorry, that was just a kind well, of no, and I wanna, commentary. If you don't mind, I want to I want to riff yeah. on that for just a sec. So have you heard of problems based procurement? No, no, I okay, haven't. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna love this. So, and this is one of the things I talk about in the book because I talk a lot about this notion of how you set goals and how that you know can bias your your outcomes. Um, so problems based procurement. So if a typical RFP for a city might be, okay, oh, it's time to replace all our street lights. So here's how tall they have to be. Here's how much energy they have to use. Here's how far apart they need to be spaced, blah, 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 boom. And then whoever can do it for the least money wins. But to your point, it describes the solution, not the problem. Problems-based procurement says, um, it's dark at night, we need to see, go. <laughs> right. right. So now if the best solution is, oh, let's buy, if, if the cheapest solution is buy everybody night vision goggles, great, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, so it's, you know, more innovation friendly and, 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 more, and, and more open to more people, uh, a more diverse set of, of ideas. So what they found is that because uh, people have started trying this, what they found is that uh, among other things, it produces shorter RFPs because <laughs> it actually takes less time to describe the problem than it does to, to describe what you think the solution is, which I found hilarious. Yeah, that, no, that that's awesome because I was just actually uh, talking to a friend of mine, uh, he's, he's a city planner and there's a federal grant and it's basically, uh, not to get into too many details, but they're trying to reconsider some uh, rapid transit slash, uh, uh, you know, lighter solutions for the city that's growing faster than they thought it would. And 
it's because there's a federal grant and it's tied to a specific solution already. The city doesn't want to say we're going to turn down this money. And yet they're not quite sure if that's the real problem. So there's even this tension where there's some uneasiness, Mm -hmm. but you know, who's, who, who wants to stick their head up and say, maybe we don't want that funding the way it's described. So then you have to take the funding and you have to meet these check marks. So I love the idea of problem space procurement because I think just in, in design in general, right? Like the, the, how might we's or the other stems that we might use to open up the way we consider something rather than diving into the solution. Question for you with your, your bias. And so I'm, I'm trying to be explicit about my mental model to, to express my biases here, but, uh, one of the things that I think might be, would be difficult for me, again, I don't want to project to you, but now that you know all of these biases, can, is, it, is it something you can't unsee? So when you go through the world, when you're even like looking at maybe a newspaper article, a, a blog post, or even things around you, because I, I feel like once you get exposed to a problem, it's hard to unsee it. So do you see yeah. bias everywhere then? Oh, completely. And it's, it's, it's at once frustrating, but also like forgiving. I'm much more compassionate now because I look at someone who believes that you shouldn't wear a mask and I'm like, I get why you think that. And I don't, and I know that I can't just yell at you and make you stop. I know that'll actually only make it worse. Uh, But I also see things like folks trying to bring facts to a culture war and I'm like, oh, yeah, I get why you think that's going to work, but it's not, it's not even, it's not the, it's not the actual problem. Uh, You know, it's like, and and I, I look at like, when I, it makes me change what I decide is a problem. So, for example, I look at Trump, you know, cards on the table. I'm not a huge fan, <laughs> but I don't say he's the problem. Like, I'm looking forward to him not being in office, but I know that once he's not in office, you still have roughly 60 million Americans who thought it was a good idea for him to be in office. And most of them will still think that. Uh, again, because I have an understanding about things like post-purchase rationalization, that even when we do something that has negative outcomes, we tend to like to believe where we make good choices, so we will defend that choice. Right, right. So it doesn't shock me that lots of people still support Trump, even though the reasons they voted for him, he may not have followed through on. That was never the issue. <laughs> um, and so that, so I'm like, oh, gee, that is to me is a much bigger, gnarlier, like to your point, wicked problem is, and Dana Boyd is great at talking about this. How do you deal with a populace where some people believe that truth and knowledge come from experience and, and um, experts and science and um, empirical data, whereas some people do not believe that truth is empirical? Some people believe the truth is a matter of belief and faith and, you know, what do you trust? Um, and I don't actually know how to fix that, but I do know if you don't, it doesn't really matter who's in office. I yeah. mean, it's better for people to be in office to believe in science, but you're still going to have a large, for example, if we rolled out a vaccine tomorrow, there would be a lot of people who simply would not take it. That is the bigger problem in the long run, even though I would love for there to be a vaccine. I'm not saying right. don't solve that problem. I'm saying once you solve that problem, understand there's a much bigger one waiting for you. <laughs> like <Yeah>. season two. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had a cliffhanger and, yeah. <laughs> and we get to binge on the next season pretty soon. Yeah, uh, but that's what, that's what bias has sort of shown me, or at least that's, that's, the, that's the bias I have is to look for the bias in the problem and see, oh, well, if you don't fix that, you right. might fix this one part temporarily, but things still going to come back later. 
So in, in some ways, it's also, it feels like uh, you know, using stereotypical design language here, but sometimes it's more, uh, if you're not addressing the bias, it's more of a symptomatic treatment. You're, oh yeah. Right. You're, you're dealing with some things and yes, they, they are symptoms, but you're, you're not going to get down to the root cause, which in this case would be the biases that people possess. Yeah. And, and like, to be perfectly honest, like I talk about an, an anonymized resumes in the book, but I point out like once I finish talking about them, hey, look, this is a Band-Aid, right? Because even if you have a perfectly anonymized hiring system, the pool of people you're hiring from is already heavily skewed white male, if we're talking about something like web development. Mm -hmm. And the reason is there are systemic reasons that it is very unlikely for women to be in that pool. There are systemic reasons that it is very unlikely for a black person to be in that pool. Until you fix that, you've only really made it fairer for that still heavily white male pool. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, Want to just check, because I, I, I just recently did an interview with uh, Adam Hansen uh, from Ideas to Go. Uh, he had a book called uh, Outsmart Your Instincts and addresses a little bit of bias in there. That sounds really interesting. And so one of the things when you, we, we were kind of talking about wearing a mask and just a few, right? I mean, some of those patterns and some of the, like this, this has helped humans survive, right? So certain, certain things that have like certain patterns where maybe it was a more conservative, uh, great, 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 great. And, you know, like as long as, long as they, they weren't getting eaten by a tiger, that pattern, they'll recognize a, a Russell and Bush, but you know, being safer or, you know, some, some of these biases that perpetuate themselves. But then we were talking about uh, evolution and kind of bringing mask and pandemic into it. Uh, a friend of mine actually, his PhD is in coronavirology and he's a microbiology oh, wow. researcher. So he's, when you talk about facts and non-facts, he's like beside himself. He's usually very, <laughs> very happy-go-lucky. One of the, one of the like best people to hang out with. Uh, and he's so down in the dumps because like just, kind of anti-science things. Uh, but he shared with me this, I believe it came out this week from the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, how long it takes the human to evolve 1% versus an RNA virus to evolve 1%. It takes the, uh, the human species 8 million years to evolve 1%. It takes an RNA virus two to three days to evolve 1%. Yeah. So just yeah. even, even some of those things where are, are these biases, are they hardwired? How, how might we help humans like see ourselves and, and, and start to address bias a little more effectively? Yeah, so the, I don't remember when the scientific method was invented or developed, but it was basically recognizing confirmation bias, which is probably one of the most prolific destructive biases we've got, right? Um, but, uh, but the assumption that I'm right the dedication to only looking at evidence that proves I'm right. Um, the scientific method was des designed to fight that. And I thought that the scientific method was really about, oh, I have an idea, I'm gonna test it. And if I'm right, I get a bunch of other people to test it. And if they get the same results, we're good. When actually you do all of that, but then after you do all of that, you say, okay, now we're not good. I now have to actively try to disprove what I found. I have to ask myself, if I'm wrong, what else would be true? And, the, and then go try and prove that. And I think that it's funny because I've been thinking a lot lately about, well, what is the bias that makes people not want to wear masks? And if you look at the, 
behavior or the attitudes or the rhetoric, you know, and it's very freedom loving. It's very, but in a very peculiar classist white way <laughs> of freedom loving, that's maybe not in favor of black lives matter, but totally in favor of not having to wear a mask <laughs> right, or right. totally cool. with like white guys showing up with guns at the state Capitol, but not cool with black guys with like sticks showing up at uh, target. Right. You know, curious. Right. right? Um, and it's to, to put, to put a fine point on it, it's, it's hyper-masculine. Right. And I feel like the scientific method asks you to be vulnerable. The scientific method asks you to question yourself. And we have a very hyper-masculine or a particular vision of masculinity in this country and in others, frankly, um, that doesn't like that. <laughs> like we have a vision of masculinity where like a strong man is someone who is certain, yeah. takes action, yeah. doesn't question himself. Right. And it's this very old, antiquated, but still very alive today notion of what it means to be a man. Um, and which is a not very to say John only, Wayne kind of yes, right? just yeah. like want to go back and but, be the Duke. But, yeah. And, and it's not to say that it's only men who are refusing to wear masks. It is certainly right, not. Right. But but that notion of what it means to be strong. Mm -hmm. Right. And what it means to be American. Right. It is a, it is it is a vision of that. And it is a vision that is very much aligned with on we're, we're, we need to go out and start the economy. I don't need to wear a mask. We're, we're America. We can, we can do anything. You can't tell us what we can do. Um, and that's why I say I totally get it when people are like, I don't want to wear a mask. It's like I totally get how comforting that notion of strength is and how incompatible that idea of strength is with things like the scientific method and questioning yourself and taking the most precautious, compassionate right, approach to a problem. Uh, but that, I don't even remember what the initial question was, but that's. <laughs> no, that it was thinking about human evolution and thinking. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, but that, that, that we, we've evolved that, right? Like that, yeah. that, that approach to certainty is, I mean, that, that's the thing that most cognitive biases have in common is that they're there to get us to certainty. We love certainty. We hate uncertainty and we will jump over logic. We will jump over other people to get to certainty. And yeah. If I see a rustle in the grass, the people who immediately assumed without any further evidence that it was a tiger and were right, survived and passed on their genes. The people who stood for a moment and thought, is it really a tiger and got eaten did not pass on their genes, <laughs> right. right? Which is why we needed to create. And, and, and here's the thing, like the human species has basically supplanted evolution with adaptation, right? We said, we don't really need to evolve. We can just build stuff. The scientific method is one of the things we built. We realized, you know, subconsciously or not, that we're not going to get very far if we keep assuming it's a tiger and to the point where we're not able to actually do stuff and, and reliably deal with stuff that isn't a tiger, like a disease. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're going to need to start building things, building mental things, mental constructs that allow us to accomplish more. Like that's all technology is, is a thing you make to allow you to accomplish more than you could without the thing. Right. So we created this technology called the scientific method because we knew our biases aren't going anywhere for the next eight million years. What can we do instead? Yeah. Yeah. The, I want to uh, kind of rumble with the, uh, the masculinity element. I agree, I agree with you. And no, uh, conversations my wife and I have had too is almost a toxic masculinity that seems to be driving this and almost this kind of 
parental view that also lots of people do like somebody else to be certain, like maybe they don't want to investigate it right? versus, you know, like being vulnerable is I think a, an act of mature, of social emotional maturity. Like, I don't know, but I want to find out. And, and it, I'm sorry, cause I wish I could more elegantly tie these together, but I also feel like it's like system one, system two thinking system mm-hmm. two thinking is exhaustive, right? Especially if you don't have a trained muscle for it, thinking about your brain as a muscle. And if you don't do system two thinking, once you have to engage in it, you're, you're wiped out. And that's like system one is like, just give me certainty. Let me do this. Yeah. I'll just get through my job, get home, go through the commute, turn on Netflix and my life is all right. And then I'll get up and do that routine again. But to, to question, to investigate, to be reflective can be tiring. And uh, now this, this is me as a, as a, a white male talking to you too. I've, I have wondered about like, especially the, not that civil rights and the need for civil rights is new, but with the Black Lives Matter movement, I've wondered if also there's like a, just a, a kind of a cognitive dissonance around, uh, I don't know, guilt mm-hmm. and an embarrassment that, that people don't want to embrace, right? Rather than, than look at this. So a lot of stuff, sorry, a lot of stuff in yeah, there, yeah, but, yeah. but sometimes I'm, I'm thinking, is it, is it just almost, for lack of a better term, a mental laziness back to these almost automated patterns that people, especially in a time of crisis, they do want more certainty because there's so much mm-hmm. going around them. So sometimes they just retreat to certainty, even if it isn't fact, scientific fact. I don't know if any of that's making sense. No, and, and, and it does. I mean, I think, well, let's get, get, let's get back to that guilt thing, because right? I think yeah. that any, any diversity expert, you bring a diversity expert into your company to make you more diverse. Um, I just made a face there. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Any, anyone who does that work who's worth their salt knows that the first thing you need to do is talk about bias itself and understand that if you bring up people of color, white men generally already, their heart rate goes up. <laughs> they literally have a physiological reaction to talking about race. And if you don't deal with that, you're not going to get anywhere and people are going to get defensive and clam up. So there's a mental space people need to get to, white people need to get to, I'll just be blunt. Yeah. Um, old James Baldwin about it. Um, uh, but but uh, if you don't get to that space, you're not going to engage with this. If you don't get to a vulnerable space, you're not going to be able to engage with this issue. And I think that's, we've been kicking that can down the road since slavery. Right. right. Um, we didn't want to deal with it then. When it was over, we still didn't want to deal with it. When we invented new versions of it, we didn't want to deal with that. And we just kept kicking it down the road, kicking it down the road, and kicking it down the road. And like we get where we are now. And what keeps the cycle we keep repeating is we kick it down the road to the point where people are ready to burn stuff down. And we're like, okay, I guess we can't kick it down the road anymore. What's the least I can give you to make you stop burning things down? That? Great. Okay, can I start putting you in jail again? Great, let's go, right? (laughs) But that's been the pattern. And it it reminds me of someone who just hasn't dealt with their stuff and is acting out and they finally need to go get therapy and deal with their shit. And I feel like, and and to go bring it back to Baldwin, that's basically what he was saying. It's these white people, you got to deal with your shit. Like this isn't on us. You caused this, you need to fix it. And I feel like you're right. That guilt, those aren't, those aren't fun feelings. <laughs> no one likes to feel responsible for another one's suffering. Um, again, unless you're a sociopath, no one really likes to yeah. feel responsible <laughs> for someone else's suffering. And so we like to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And I like, we, I like to think we can get to the point where people love black people. We're at the point now where some people feel guilty 
about them, which is better than where we were before, <laughs> where it was just didn't think of them at all or actively hated them. So we've made progress, but where I hope we end up is a place where people genuinely love black people because you protect what you love. You empower what you love. You give money to what you love, <laughs> right? Right. I think right now, white America at best is looking at black America and going, oh, there's that guy I owe money. Ooh, can I avoid them? <laughs> right? You don't actively <laughs> want to spend time with that person because you know you don't got it. You know you're not ready to pay him. It's like you're walking down the street and you, you know you owe somebody 20 bucks. Exactly. And, and I'm just going to avoid eye contact and, and duck into and, the store. <laughs> and, these, and these companies right now releasing um, like statements or whatever, uh, some of them I think are actually great, but some of them are like writing people an IOU. <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, I know. Can I pay back like Tuesday and shit? Like that, I feel like that's <laughs> what a lot of that is right now. Cause like, oh, I guess I do have to say Black Lives Matter now. Okay, Black Lives Matter. Um, can they matter on Wednesday? You know, like, <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's, yeah. But, but, I, but, I, but I think you're right. People have difficulty engaging with that. And all I can say to that honestly is, I get that it's tough. I get that it's hard. It's not nearly as hard as being shot by the cops. <laughs> Fair, fair. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, on the corporate side too, like for, from a, a brand perspective for me, it was one of the things that was interesting is you'd see a lot of companies where it is basically like an all white board in probably a nearly all white brand team. Here's, here, here's what we have to come out with. Here's our statement. Right. And it's going to have black background. It's going to have white and, and it's going to, it's going to say that we care. And then we'll, we'll, we'll put our logo at the bottom. Oh my God. I love, someone should do that. Like the um, Black Lives Matter statement bingo. Like it's got to be in a black background with white text. Yep. It's got to be this many. Pa oh, oh yeah. Certain words. Oh, you're right. I hadn't thought about the design aesthetic of the Black Lives Matter apology, but it's a thing. It is absolutely a thing. And, and, I, and that's, I always, I always really want to see like a, uh, just like a picture of the boardroom on everybody that gave that the green light. Yeah. Uh, um question for you uh, with the with the book and your work on cognitive bias and this might be asking asking a parent if they have a favorite child but yeah. do, do you have a favorite bias is there is there one that it's just the like just brings brings you joy in some way of, like <laughs> researching it understanding it i i do not have a favorite bias i have a most hated one we'll go with that <laughs> yeah uh because i don't i don't like bias um i um my most hated one is uh, actually called uh, Just World Hypothesis. And, uh, and, and, and like most things you hate, you, you, you are a little guilty of it too. But, um, but basically it's this notion that everything is okay, that the world is a just and good place. So if something bad happens to somebody, they probably deserved it, right? So if you think about the Black Lives Matter movement, like the reason that was necessary was because the existing narrative was, oh, if a black guy gets shot by the cops, he probably deserved it. And news stories would come out and inevitably the news story would be, you know, this is the guy who got shot and this was his criminal record or this was a suspected behavior or he was in this bad neighborhood. Like some reason it made sense for the cop to shoot him and nothing about the cop's record. Right. So there was uh, uh, all, but all of that narrative was based on the notion that this is the way the world is and it should be that way. It is right and just and good people get good things and bad people have bad things happen to them. And that has expressed uh, capitalism for a long time, that if you're rich, you probably deserve that you did something good. And if you're poor, oh, you're lazy, you did something bad. Not that um, you had generational wealth and exactly. favors on your side. 
Yeah, just world hypothesis doesn't know that systems exist. <laughs> it only it only knows that people exist and people have agency and that agency leads to their outcomes, pure and simple, right? And that is a very dangerous tool for an oligarchy to have, <laughs> right? right? If you're in power, you want people to believe in the just world hypothesis because then everything you do, no matter what happens, oh, it's good that you did that because we live in a just world and the only way anything you know bad could happen as if a bad person did it yeah yeah thanks because uh and it, back back when i was an undergrad and you know doing broadcast and film i had a couple you know obviously there's always media critique classes and we'd look at like lenses that the end and even framing that's done what's left out what's and i've just been noticing more to just specifically uh with george floyd mm. right some of the elements that came up with First, it was there was there was a questionable counterfeit thing. Was was he was he passing a twenty dollar bill that was counterfeit or not? Um, and th this is after somebody has been choked to death, right? But then it's like, well, was he trying to pass a twenty dollar bill, right? And then some other things came out later, like well, he had drugs in his system, and so then it's like, oh, so so the cop knew that, and the cop knew his criminal record from the beginning, and just decided to be jerk, right? It's it's really interesting when trying to apply, well, this person's already done bad things. And so using the just, it, it, it's the just world catching up with him, right? Yeah, and that's- yeah. And even though that cop is, is a felon, right? For felony tax evasion and mm -hmm. voting in two states. So when we talk about voter fraud, voter fraud tends to look a little bit more white than it does anything else, but that doesn't fit a narrative either. Yeah, and we see the same thing when, um... Uh, good old boy promising, you know, rising, you know, football star in a small town is accused of rape. And they go to the victim and they say, hey, if you make this accusation, it could ruin that kid's life. Right. Rather yeah. than, <laughs> hey, your life is being ruined right now. What can we do to help you? It's no, right. we have a narrative. It's a just world. And if something bad happened to you, oh, maybe you were asking for it, right? Like how many times has that phrase right. been used to denigrate women who have been sexually assaulted? And it's coming from a place of the world is a just place where women have this place. Because the just world hypothesis, curiously, always comes with roles for people to play. It's never just like, oh, good and bad, regardless of like lanes you're supposed to be. And it's always very much good is defined as staying in your lane. And if something bad happens, you must have strayed from your lane, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the other very um, power-hungry, unjust piece of the just world hypothesis. And the horror of it, to me, because it's bad enough if you have a bunch of power-hungry people at the top believing that, that makes sense. The horror of it is it really only works if everybody, regardless of how much power they have, believe it. If the rape victim believes it, right? If the black people believe it right? If black kids can't imagine themselves being anything but drug dealers because that's what they're told they're supposed to be. If they can't imagine doing anything but ending up in jail or dead because that's what they're told, that's how this world works, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that to me, and it crosses over into this thing called system justification theory, but that to me is the true horror of it is internalized sexism, internalized racism. Because again, we're going back to patterns, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. is the pattern that's been established and it's a pattern that benefits the wealthy. It's a pattern that benefits uh, folks who, you know, get off on oppression or make money off of oppression. Right, right. Yeah, thank you. Uh, want to... Uh, 
dig into the book just a little bit more, more in the almost maybe a virtual book tour kind of way. Uh, where, where can people find out more about your book? Sure. If you go to daviddillonthomas.com, um, I've got a link to pre-order the book. It comes out on August 25th. And there's also links to, you know, get me come speak at your thing or just have a virtual chat. Uh, it's all one-stop shopping, but you can also pre-order the book there. Right on. Uh, one of the one of the topics I cover with guests is also the notion of advice and mm -hmm. uh, so then kind of meta, but stealing from Austin Cleon, steal like an artist. Sometimes when we give advice, we're talking to our younger self. Mm. But any good advice that you received in your younger days uh, from a mentor, or is there advice you wished you would have received when you were younger that you might have for listeners? Sure. So uh, there's a guy named Alex Hillman, who you should absolutely have on your show. I'm going to go on record here. Um, he just finished a book called Tiny MBA, uh, which is fantastic. It's like the anti-MBA. It's great. Um, but uh, he and our books are actually coming out like a day apart, I think. But, um, but he once gave me a piece of advice that I will never forget. And he said, it is impossible to listen and react at the same time. And if you think about it, it's true. If you're, you're at a party and someone's telling you a story, and in the back of your head, you're like, oh, I know a great response to this story. I should tell them this story. Let me see if I can remember the details of that story. The second you start reacting like that, you're no longer listening to what they have to say. So at best, you've heard half of what they have to say, and now you're just waiting for your turn to speak. Whereas if you actively listen to someone, really quiet that voice inside that's trying to come up with a good response, you'll actually hear them, right? And I, I, I consider that good like research advice and like practitioner advice, but I also consider yep. it good life advice because we're put on this earth to help each other and we can really help each other if we're listening. We're gonna have a hard time helping each, each other if we don't hear each other and if we don't see each other. So I, every single day, like, work to make sure that when I'm talking to somebody, like even in this conversation, I'm like really trying to focus to make sure I'm listening to what you have to say rather than be like, and it's hard on our podcast too. It's rather than have right. that instinct of, Oh, I got a great story for this. Let me make sure I remember that. I, oh no, it's yep. going to go away. Yep. I need to, oh, you know, like that panic. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, no, I got to quiet that and just be like, conversation's going to go where it's going to go. I'm going to listen to him. It's better that I listen to him like that, yep. that, but that advice is advice I literally use every day. That's great. Thank you. And when you and we were talking about that, I, I, I do a lot of work with teams and team dynamics when it comes to communication. And, uh, you know, that's in many ways, uh, office conversation, team conversations don't differ that much from kindergartners where it was more just it's more turn taking right to point rather than like, I'm just waiting, where can I interject my point? Okay. It, it would be too rude to step over somebody right now. But I got to remember what I'm saying. So you're not listening to the flow. And yeah, just I mean, kind of a Zen, like, like how, how might we be more present? Yeah, it's all a lot when of we're in the moment, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to the book. Uh, you know, not, to, not to score points, but to let you know, I already have it on pre-order. So I'm looking forward awesome. to, to its you. arrival. And really appreciate you taking the, taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a blast.